It's really rewarding to actually build something for yourself and to build something where you're really motivated to win for yourself in a sense and for the people that you're putting around yourself. It's almost like we treat our recruiting and hiring in tech as waterfall, even though we're so against it. So if we treated it a little bit less like that, I think there'd be some huge benefits. Some people like to be loved, some people like to be right, and some people like to win. And you have to pick which of those three you're gonna do. Welcome to the Generation Hustle Podcast, the show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture, all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin, and this week we're back and we're talking about freelancing. More specifically, how to manage your finances as a freelancer. Episode 64 is with Alexander Nuth, co-founder and COO at Control HQ. Control HQ is a financial management tool for freelancers and flexible workers. The freedom and flexibility of self-employment is coveted, but not the antiquated process of managing your money from irregular pay to income taxes. Alexander built her way up in corporate strategy before teaming up with two colleagues on this venture to become the financial management company for independence. We talked to Alex about her move from corporate to entrepreneurship, the future of flexible work and why Control HQ is so important in this space, the importance of mentorship, and so much more. This was such an insightful conversation that we hope you enjoy. Alex. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We were super excited to talk to you about your story uh, and the story of Control HQ and just kind of understand uh, your background as well. But we'd like to start off with that. We'd like to give our guests the floor to start and just uh, give a little bit of a background about, you know, your journey and how you uh, came to be here today. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Alex. Um, I'm originally a Calgarian in Canada. Um, but right now I'm stationed out in the Okanagan, so wine country. We made that move during COVID. Um, my background, I've spent a lot of time in fintech and technology, um, recovered consultant from my early days, uh, but now am running full-fledged at a startup called Control HQ, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, but outside of work, I'm always in the mountains. I've got two giant dogs and a uh, giant husband. He's six foot three. <laughs> so uh, usually that's where, where I am on the weekends when I'm not working. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, we always love to hear kind of like your interests and I can see the bike in the background is that uh, I guess hiking is huge for you. Yeah. <laughs> I have to try to keep active. Um, we got that during COVID too. It's had a lot of use. For sure. For sure. Um, I know you touched a little bit on your career background here and kind of how you kind of moved up. Um, something that we looked at as well was kind of your history in there. Can you talk a little bit about that um, prior to entrepreneurship, kind of your route, um, working your way up to more senior roles um, throughout your history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So uh, like I mentioned, I started my career in consulting, uh, did that for a number of years, uh, got taken all around the world, got to work on lots of cool projects, uh, got a little bit tired of the travel and being told uh, on a Friday that I was flying somewhere on a Sunday and hopefully I didn't have plans. So after a couple of years of that, decided that um, I was going to move on from there and actually joined a regional bank called A2B Financial. Uh, and that's where I had a lot of my career growth, to be honest. Um moved up from kind of an innovation type role, working with a lot of fintech type products, um, but very quickly moved into leading uh, larger teams and strategy discussions and things like that. Uh, But most notably, I was given the reins to start building a digital bank from scratch. Um, And so was handed over a blank piece of paper and a board mandate and a a bunch of money and was told, let's go solve this problem together. Um, And how are you going to do that? So that was kind of uh, my big career growth period was uh, building that. So it was kind of a startup within a big company, which has its own complexities and is definitely a lot different than a real startup. 
um, but grew that team from about zero to over 150 um, and took it from pretty much nothing to an actual full-fledged secondary bank with a marketing team and operations and product development and everything inside of it. Uh, and then after that, uh, decided I wanted to go out on my own. Um, had a couple big opportunities within the bank and decided that corporate wasn't really my, my jam um, and decided to, to go into entrepreneurship. So that's led me to where I am now. I think I've always been kind of interested in entrepreneurship, but um, did the big company thing to get the credibility and the experience before fully jumping in. For sure. That's incredible. And you touched on it there. You always kind of had an entrepreneurial itch there. Um, was that something, what, what was some of the motivating factors there? I know uh, impact and working in a, in a big company, it's hard to kind of manage that. Uh, but since you had the entrepreneurial itch from before, like, can you speak to some of the motivations that you had going through this? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think part of it was uh, my parents were both very entrepreneurial my whole life. So that definitely sets a stage of like, okay, it's not so scary. There's ways to do this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're not going to fail completely. Um, I also have a lot of friends that were in entrepreneurship. So it just kind of seemed like that inevitable um, journey for me that I would get there. Um, but from a career standpoint, I think it's really rewarding to actually build something for yourself um, and to build something where you're really motivated to win on like for yourself in a sense and for the people that you're putting around yourself um, and, and the things that you believe in for that business venture Within a corporation, you're just really a soldier, I think, um, working your way up. And so uh, having that freedom, that autonomy, and also just that ability to run really hard at a problem and not be slowed down was really what motivated me to do that and make that switch at that point in my career. Um, it just wasn't fun to be told, let's just wait or let's see, let's slow down. Um, that idea is too big, too scary. Um, and corporations just don't have that risk taking mentality. So for me, it was really about kind of leveling myself up and seeing what I could do. Um, it's one thing to talk about entrepreneurship, which I think a lot of people do. And it's another thing to actually go do it. So that was uh, kind of why I jumped in. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's hard to balance kind of the autonomy that people want. Like everyone speaks on autonomy, but it's also you have to balance that with risk um, that you're going to be taking on to that. So was that yeah. ever a factor there as well? Like, how do you manage that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely a huge risk. Um, I think I've always said that being an entrepreneur is a little bit of a privilege. Um, you can't just do it if you don't have the money put aside or if you don't have the personal situation to do it. Um, so at that point in my career, you know, I made some good money, had money put aside. So for me, taking that risk to not make money for a little bit was something I could do, um, which definitely made it a lot easier. If I was trying to pay my bills um, I was worried about eating, it would be a lot harder to jump into that. I know some people do that. But I think being able to have that kind of safety net to say I can take this risk and really go in without the stress made a huge impact. Um, and then I'm very lucky my husband's extremely stable and supportive. And so he's, uh, he was like, let's just go do this, you go run at it. Um, you know, we put some time periods on it to see if it would be successful so that we weren't losing money forever. Um, it didn't work, but, uh, he was the one that definitely said, you know, we can do this. Like, let's go, let's put the risk on you. And he, he was going to hold down the fort and, uh, that worked out perfectly. Yeah, no, I think that's important, uh, in terms of, you know, having some type of risk aversion or just having that profile there. I remember talking to one of my friends who had out of school started the business. 
and uh, or he had worked a little bit before and then he completely went into the entrepreneurship route and he was talking to me one day. He's like, dude, I'm stressed out. I don't know how to uh, buy my grocery or that stuff. Yeah. And he had to go to the bank of mom and dad to kind of, you know, fund his lifestyle for a little bit. And he's just like, I wish I'd, you know, maybe done this uh, as a side hustle first mm-hmm. before, you know, kind of going fully into it. So, you know, the point you made there is um, very kind of important for some entrepreneurs to realize like, Sometimes having your eggs in one basket is not always the greatest thing until, you know, it's viable that you can kind of scale it. Right. So yeah, for sure. uh, I think it's important. Um, one of the things I'd also love to talk about, you kind of uh, mentioned it a little earlier, is kind of these values that you kind of might have and motivations around, you know, entrepreneurship and, you know, what makes a great entrepreneurship. So uh, if you could think of maybe one core value that you've had and you had to uphold. Uh, what is it and why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, it's an interesting question. One, this is actually what I stole from one of my product managers that was on my team a couple years back. So I'll, I'll give him the credit for it. Um, but he always used to say some people like to be loved, some people like to be right, and some people like to win. Um, and you have to pick which of those three you're going to do. And that one's kind of stuck with me for a number of years. And I definitely think I'm in that... I like to win category. And I think that's why um, entrepreneurship is a good fit for me and also why it's worked. Um, and I think it's really easy just generally as humans to, to either want to do what's right um, for your ego, uh, whether that's, you know, I, I have the best business opportunity idea and I don't want to take harsh feedback on it. Um, or I know that, that I'm right, even though, you know, certain signs or symbols aren't working in that way, or I want to be loved in the sense of, um, you know, I'm trying to do things to kind of push my ego out or just promote myself or um, maybe not making harsh decisions, hiring friends, things like that. So what I found, um, keeping that value kind of front of mind to say, how do you treat everything within your business at that winning mentality uh, is really, really critical so that you're not making decisions from a personal standpoint or um, an ego standpoint, so that you're really focused on that goal and trying to figure out how you're going to win. So that's a value I always kind of remind myself of every every week, and it's often hard. We all have a tendency to fall into one of those traps, um, but that's one of the ones that has kind of stuck with me. Yeah, and I'd love to kind of understand also the scope of, you know, with every company that you're building, you have to develop a culture. And I feel like a lot of the influence from culture comes from the founders in terms of Mm -hmm. how they're trying to build a company. So you guys are three individuals with obviously maybe three different personalities. And how do those kind of values that you guys have um, kind of curate that culture that you're trying to build uh, and making sure that it's the right culture that's built for like the future employees and stuff like Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think one of the things that's evolved on my thoughts on culture over time is trying to make sure it is aligned to the founders. I think sometimes we can read books on culture. Like everyone reads the same books from chapters on like uh, that you buy off the bookshelf that sound great about how you're going to have a Pixar culture or Google culture or whatever. But I think the ultimate part is trying to figure out a culture that works for you so that you're not living something that's hard for you to live. And I'd say within how we're building things, we definitely have this kind of goal orientation we're probably a little bit more on the side of like honest and candid and have a lot of candor about calling things out as they are um, and not necessarily tiptoeing around things, sugarcoating things and quite analytical um, as a founding team. And so 
for us, as we kind of have built our culture and just how we work together, um, that's been really important is to kind of say, who are we deeply down as people? And then how do we translate that into winning culture and take advantage of our strengths, which might be dual edged swords at times, um, but finding the people that are going to thrive in that environment with us so that we're not trying to create a culture that isn't true to who we are. And it's going to be a challenge for us to actually live and be um, more what makes us strong, what makes us good. And then how do we take that forward and build on that and make that more of a differentiator than um, try to be something different? Uh, yeah, you mentioned building a culture true to who you are. So I think authenticity is often a word that's really used nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, and I find myself using it in a lot of conversations we have with entrepreneurs. Um, so, you know, when you're building culture, authenticity is an important part of it. But you've also mentioned, you know, a lot of companies trying to mimic what Google's making or mm -hmm. Pixar has done. So what are the pitfalls of maybe, you know, going for something as high as a Pixar or a Google or something like that and not straying, uh, not staying, I say, I say authentic mm -hmm. to yourself? What are the drawbacks to that? And do employees actually see that? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think they do. Um, I've been in cultures where, you know, there's a really beautiful, um, vision set up. Um, my old company was really crazy about Zappos and had went and chatted with them a bunch. But if you're not actually able to live it or you don't know how to live it, I think that's the hardest part. Like one thing is a good idea. The other thing is execution. Um, if you don't know how to live that value, like you can't even attempt to, to try to pretend <laughs> like you're, you're doing it. Um, and I think it's that incongruency that causes a lot of churn um, within employees. Um, I also think one of the pitfalls with culture and kind of these aspirational culture pieces is that a lot of these business books are always just the rosy, perfect sided view of what happened. Like not very many actually talk about what was hard about it or what failed about it or what the downfalls of these certain things are. It's just this beautiful view of like, if you treat people well and the things that seem like common sense that everything's going to work out and you're going to have this great culture. Um, but no one really talks about the hard stuff behind it. And so I think when you're a bit more authentic, when those hard moments come through, you're able to handle them a little bit more in step and you're not left wondering how would Pixar do this? <laughs> because there's no answer to that um, on the hard stuff. So I think that's why it's really important to, to really kind of just in some senses operate a little bit more from the gut and a little bit more um, just from who you are, because it creates a better playbook that you don't have to be guessing at. For sure. Yeah. And I feel like there's something that you have a theme going on here in terms of uh, believing in yourself and also having some sort of support system around you, whether that's, you know, taking things from your books or, you know, your husband as well. Um, is there any kind of mentor type relationship that you would like to uh, or you would have uh, throughout this process, whether career wise or personal life wise? I think a lot mm -hmm. of the founders that we talked to have mentioned that um, that's a really key piece that has helped them kind of just raise the bar or get to that next level. Um, so is there anything like that for you? Yeah, I've, I've been lucky that I've had tons of different iterations of mentors over time. Um, so I've had everything from when I was at big corporate executive coaches to um, sponsors or what people call sponsors to mentors, uh, formalized, non-formalized and everything in between. Um, I think for me, the big thing is always having somebody or a couple people at any point, but always having them based on what you're dealing with and what problems you're solving at that moment in time. So who's a good mentor for you at point one is probably not the right mentor for you um, a year into solving something. 
I'd say the one that I've gotten the most value out of, um, I'm part of a forum. Um, and it's something that a lot of, a, a lot of kind of CEOs will, will kind of talk about, but it's essentially a peer group of people in similar situations as you, um, so other people leading companies or CEOs, and it's really meant to be sort of this accountability and problem solving group where you can bring anything to the table. So a lot of personal blind spots or tactical business problems, and they'll give you this kind of unbiased view because they don't really know what you're dealing with. So they can kind of sit back and objectively challenge you and um, share their experiences in the hopes that you can kind of round out how you're trying to solve that problem. And so I find that peer mentorship, especially now, um, is something I really value and, and something that helps a lot um, as we're working through the really hard stuff. That's really interesting. Normally, uh, at least from our experience, I think I found most people like that personal relationship, that one-to-one, where this is more of like a whiteboard where you can just bounce ideas, right? Yeah, exactly. And it takes a lot of vulnerability where you have to kind of raise your own issues to say, you know, maybe I've had a bad reaction to something, like hear me out when I talk to talk about this, or I really can't, um, we've got a couple of SaaS founders in it, you know, I really can't figure out how to crack growth or my messaging and just need a second set of eyes on this. And so it's really, really helpful just to get lots of different opinions on the table, but um, in a very kind of structured way. Would you any like highlight any uh, items or kind of uh, reasonings that you would look for in a mentor in this type of relationship? And I ask that because typically there's one or two things that people look for when they want to work with someone. Um, and you may have touched on it already that you have different iterations of this as you go through different mm-hmm. progresses. Um, so that might change over time. But um, is there anything key that you look for uh, in the people that you work with in these types of places? Yeah, for sure. I think um, obviously energy and like kind of fit general chemistry is a thing. Yeah. Um, even in a couple kind of forced mentorship <laughs> situations where like the matching happens and you talk with them and you're like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, you talk, but it's, it doesn't, you're not really like vibing and, and really dealing or, or working through the tough stuff. So I think that's really, really important and can't be underestimated. And then I think the other one, it would be just the context um, around the, the problem and really making sure that that's a good fit. Um, I know when I, I've got a few mentees and that's really important is, you know, some of them, I was great for points in their career or if they're considering startups or growth or things like that. But if they move into other problems, I'm not a good fit. And so always kind of saying, can I actually add value to this conversation? Do I have the right um, perspectives to actually pro- provide that feedback to them that's going to help them? Um, and not assuming that you've got the right experience for everybody um, or vice versa, that someone can always help you solve your problems. Um, but being able to kind of objectively look at that and say, this person is actually going to provide a perspective I need. Um, so I think a bit of values alignment, problem alignment, um, and definitely chemistry. Did that come easy for you from, you know, having a mentor to being a mentor? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, my first career in consulting, they they formalized it all. <laughs> it was like very, very structured. So I ended up having a lot of mentees through that process. Um, and a lot of them I've now known for like 10 plus years and have stayed in touch with. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've always liked to kind of give back. I've benefited a lot for, from sponsors and mentors. And so it feels um, like you have to pay it forward a little bit. Uh, and if you don't, that's not really fair. So um, yeah, definitely something I've always kind of kept as part of what I do. Yeah, uh, maybe a, another thing I'd love to understand is, um, you know, there's obviously paid channels for mentorship and unpaid or and how you leverage those. So um, I feel like the paid channels, you have greater accountability because 
you know, it's a paid service. So you're going to obviously have something ready to go. Whereas I feel sometimes um, an entrepreneur can go into those, say, um, unpaid channels and stuff like that and feel like maybe intimidation or they don't, they're not really set with an agenda or don't know what they can actually get back. So what is your opinion on maybe using both? And at what time do you kind of say it clicks, let's say, pay, let's use the paid kind of channel for mentorship versus let's use a genuine connection I have and ask XYZ for advice. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's interesting, like a lot of the forum groups that I've been in, like there's a mix between paid and unpaid for those, the, the big ones like EO and YPO and those sorts of ones, um, tech, they, they are typically paid and quite expensive. Mm. Um, but I think ultimately it's whether or not I, I would pay for it if I couldn't find it naturally. Yeah. Um, so my current form isn't paid. We just like all got together and it's, we structure ourselves and self-facilitate and have our own kind of, I guess it's like a less formalized DAO almost like we're just yeah. all making decisions about it. Um, but it works really, really well. But if I didn't have that, I would be looking for it. And if I couldn't create it myself, I would be paying for it. So I think it's just about saying, uh, having that self accountability and that awareness to say, I've got this problem that I need to solve is there anybody who can solve this problem and then just going after and getting it, uh, whether it's paid or unpaid. So I don't, I think they can both have a role. Um, mm -hmm. but if you don't have those people that can help you with those problems, you should pay for it because um, getting advice, you can never have too much advice or too much help on these things and trying to do it alone is just way too overwhelming. Yeah. And I always like to say time equals money. So the more yes. time you're wasting on trying to find that solution or need that advice, less time you have out in markets, maybe somebody else has taken advantage of that, right? So, uh, you know, that makes, uh, you know, uh, us to a segue of where I want to understand what you're building now. Uh, so Control HQ. So I'd love to understand, you know, where the idea came from and understand like the problem that you guys are tackling and solving. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, so um, one of my co-founders, Kevin, um, I had met him a couple of years ago when my company actually bought his company. Um, oh, okay. So that, that's how we met each other. And I was starting to kind of play around and, and poke around um, a fintech idea. And it wasn't I wasn't really sure if I was going in the right direction. So I was actually using him as an advisor and a mentor and um, wasn't really getting the product market traction that I was looking for. And so he kind of poked and was like, hey, I'm looking at building some stuff in the flexible workspace um, and in fintech. And obviously, my experience is more fintech would you be interested in kind of solving this problem with me and uh, Andrea, the third co-founder? Um, and so met them, mostly it was around like, could we work together and things like that? And then started to figure out what problem we wanted to solve in the space. And so kind of our big thesis is that we believe flexible work is gonna be the standard in the future. Um, these traditional nine to fives where you have to show up in the office or even just have a full-time employment. Um, isn't really going to reflect how people are going to be working in the future. But the problem is that a lot of financial companies don't know how to treat self-employed people or people with weird non-traditional income. So we kind of married up this problem that we see, which is it's really hard to get financing. It's really hard um, for non-business people to understand cash flow management or how to use business tools or financing tools within their businesses of one um, with the fact that we've bought this financial background, both Kevin and Andrea and myself. And so we decided to marry that together. So that's what we're really trying to solve is a whole bunch of financial solutions for this future of work. Um, and that way, hopefully more people can actually jump into freelancing and knowledge work and this contract type work, even becoming a creator 
without having to sacrifice the ability to get a mortgage, without having to sacrifice the ability to get credit or the ability to feel certain about how to manage their money. Yeah. And I think that's so important, especially as as you mentioned, like we're having a shift where a lot of people are going independent or, you know, a lot of individuals are wanting to freelance as their kind of main thing. Um, And, you know, with you mentioned mortgages, for example, you generally need two years of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, income to provide to validate any of your stuff. So I think you're providing a huge service. So one of the things I love to understand is, you know, there might be companies that are also doing this um, in terms of, uh, say, a similar scope. Why is Control HQ the best tool for uh, users and why is it best for their day-to-day finances? For sure. Yeah, there's a lot of people entering into the space. <laughs> we, we watch almost all of them. I think the, the big thing for us, especially as a differentiator, is we're going after the hardest stuff first, which is credit. Um, and a lot of people especially in fintech and banking, um, you know, you start with payments, you start with cards, you start with the easy stuff. Um, and we're, we, we thought about that. We evaluated that, but we're going to go after the hard stuff, which is the credit side. Um, and that's where our experiences are and, and where we think the bigger pain point is as well. So that's really what we're trying to solve for um, is, is that. And there's way less people participating in that side of the equation. There's a lot of invoice factoring solutions, um, and you've got certain companies that are really well suited for e-com like ClearCo and others, but a way less on this kind of knowledge worker side. And so that's really where we're trying to, to focus it on. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Like going after the hard things. And if you solve that, you know, the easier things just kind of are easier to build in, obviously. Um, you also mentioned after going for the hard things, another hard thing is obviously getting your beta test uh, testers and users. So how did you go about developing a strategy to get those beta users on? Because we've talked to so many entrepreneurs and the number one thing they say is super hard is getting a couple of beta users to give us a lot of tangible feedback. Mm-hmm. So what is your strategy and how have you done this, especially with this in this new space? For sure. Yeah, so we're we're still um, in alpha per se. So we haven't put beta users on yet. That's in like two months we're going to okay. be starting. Yep. But we did have to build up a wait list. And I will say growth is particularly hard. None of us uh, out of the three of us really came from a growth background. So um, that was a steep learning curve. Uh, we were working on it for a number of months and doing paid and performance marketing and trying to do organic marketing. And it's kind of, we weren't really getting that thing that was clicking yet. Um, and we kept talking to all sorts of people and experts and hiring contractors and trying to figure out what, what was going on. Um, and then kind of early, uh, about early Jan, we, we kind of stumbled upon just a change in messaging and a combination of a bunch of things. And it just blew up and took off. So um, I wish I could backwards engineer it because the amount of time I Googled <laughs> this exact problem to try to figure out how to solve it. Um, I spent a lot of time on Google and podcasts and all sorts of things trying to figure out what we needed to do. And it just ended up being that it sounds so lame, but experimentation of like, let's just keep trying like new message, new channel, new this. Okay. Let's try this new feature on Instagram or TikTok um, and see if we can make it work. And just at one point it just cracked. And then you're like, there, there it is. Like now we've got 50 to hundred percent week on week growth. Like there, it just happened. Um, and where we used to be excited about customer numbers, they're now like the numbers we're hitting in four hours. Um, and so that it's an interesting one because there's not a lot written on it and there's not a lot of yep. science to it. 
um, except for just the experimentation part. So that's what we've been really doing. And we've, we're on TikTok, we're on Instagram, we do a lot of videos, um, which again is kind of uncomfortable for all of us because we like, we're kind of like this geriatric millennial group trying to talk about Zed. Um, and we're trying our hardest, but like it's working and we're just trying it and we seem to be getting the right feedback on it. So. I like to understand kind of the people aspect of that um, and obviously your team itself. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, one of your co-founders you met through another business venture. We thought it was really cool that you have three co-founders and two of them are females. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a topic that we like to talk to our founders about as well uh, around the idea of, of your team and diversity um, and having that aspect of inclusive as well. Um, so can you speak to that and the importance of that or how that's impacted you in kind of your career progress? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a big one. Um, it's been it's something that's really critical for the three of us around DNI, and um, something that probably brought us all together a little bit too. And, and partially why we believe in flexible work is because of what it enables from a DNI perspective. Um, right now, we don't have employees; we have only contractors and freelancers uh, eating our own dog food a little bit on that. And the kind of philosophy I've had, and, and what I found too in previous roles where I've kind of hired, um, is that when you have these flexible types of work arrangements or flexible ways of working. And I think three co-founders kind of helps with that, even on the founding stage, because you get to, if someone needs to take a day, it's not like the whole business falls. Right. (laughs) You can can weather things a little bit better um, because you've got that kind of diversity at that level. Um, But you're able to find a lot more diamonds in the rough, I think, because you're able to find the people that traditional employment overlooks. So when Facebook is sitting there and yeah, they're offering a lot of money but they want somebody uh, button seat five days a week, certain hours or relocating. Um, you're not able to attract the people that can't fit that. And so sometimes you can find some really, really amazing talent that doesn't fit into those traditional boxes. And on previous teams, I had um, instances where I had hired transgender people that, um, you know, they had been overlooked for jobs for a long time, but their resume was absolutely insanely good. Um, and I was able to grab them because obviously it's not an issue, but for other people it was. And, uh, or people that could only work four days or three days a week because they had childcare and they're still amazing product managers that are top tier. And so um, that's kind of why I think the future of work is really important and why DNI for us is kind of critical to our business strategy too. It's not just kind of, um, I guess, lipstick on a pig or, or just us playing word service, like we actually think we can get better outcomes and better quality people. And it works better for us as a founding team as we, I mean, we're going to be in this for years, uh, trying to build a company. So, you know, as life changes and things happen, having that, that kind of support behind the DNI initiatives is really critical. For sure. Yeah. And, and did you have anything, do you have any experiences of your own, obviously from a hiring perspective, working with um, employees or contractors, like you mentioned from different walks of life, it, kind of gave you that, uh, that the, the openness to have um, the diamond in the rough, like you said, right? But from your own personal experience, did you have anything um, that you had, any setbacks like that? And I ask that because it's very rampant in the tech space. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think, especially being a woman um, in tech, it's kind of a dual-edged sword in a sense. So in some cases, you get a lot more credits, and there's more credit than you should, <laughs> just because everyone's excited to, to show off the female founder. Um, and talk about them. And so I think sometimes that can be a good thing um, and very strategic and and a good thing for your business. But I think on the other side, what I've found is that the conversations around, especially things like life planning, family planning, things like that, um, become more 
exaggerated and bigger issues because you are female. So like, you know, it's, it's one that we've talked about a lot around childcare or um, raising families. Like nobody asks a male founder about that stuff. Um, but a female founder, it's always like, you know, um, what, what's your answer to this or how are you going to handle it? Or, Oh no. Like if you're a woman, you're obviously going to have to like tap out. <laughs> like obviously that's, a, that's expected. And you're like, no, not necessarily. So um, there's definitely a little bit of that stigma and a little bit of trying to change the narrative that there isn't just one way to handle these things. And sometimes you can just like anything else, you can have risk mitigation strategies and workarounds and ways to deal with it. Um, but disproportionately, I would say females get asked that in tech and especially when you're in kind of like a founder type role. For sure. Yeah. And I think that kind of reflects in how you look at contractors and employees that you're looking for your company, right? Like your experiences shape how you can change that for the future um, and just lead by example. Um, so along that line, can you speak to uh, the hiring practice as well? Like outside of this topic itself, what you look for in people that you want to bring on board or want to bring as part of your team um, or anyone that would be interested in, you know, looking at Control HQ in the future? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's kind of, it's funny right now because labor is so tough to get. <laughs> so yeah. I'll, I'll do my wish list. Yeah. Uh, a little bit different than the reality. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it, it always comes down and it's cliche attitude and, um, you know, those sorts of things, curiosity. I think for me, what I always like to see when I'm hiring some, especially kind of in leadership roles is some sort of challenge on the future. I remember I um, was looking to hire, I had a customer support a couple of years ago and I interviewed two people and one person I said, you know, how would you approach customer support here? And they said, well, this is the way you do it. Here's the model. Here's how I currently do it. Drew it all out, had a good plan of action, but it was extremely status quo and extremely um, based on what everyone else does. Right. What I ended up hiring came in and said, well, I've been reading and I'd love to try on-demand customer support or these kind of new models around support to all asynchronous support and other things um, and came in with more of a challenge on the status quo, knowing how to do the basics and, and, to, and having that competency, but having that attitude around challenge and curiosity and wanting to progress things and be on that leading edge. So that's probably, that's what I look for a lot with people that we hire or people that I'd like to hire is not so much just following the playbook, but are you ready to kind of challenge that and put in the work to, to do the best in your area and push the push the envelope a little bit? For sure. That kind of openness to change and openness to trying something different and going out of the static. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I'd love to also ask you, um, you know, I think in tech, one of the things that is very common, especially if I look at the job description is, uh, let's say for a finance role or a strategic role, it's going to be five plus years in private equity, investment banking, or something really <laughs> like high up, right? Um, or if it's product in like some senior-esque role at a top tier company. What are your thoughts on that? And what if, what in tech have we gotten wrong by <laughs> applying this logic to like literally all these roles and all these companies having a very similar siloed philosophy? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting. Like one of the areas um, that I've been really interested in is this kind of like upskilling piece. Um, so my mom, she, she's 70 and just is working at a women in technology nonprofit organization. Nice. Uh, to busy. Um, but one of the things she's really passionate about, which I really like, is this whole idea of like transferring people from other industries into tech. Um, because 
it's not so much about what you've done in the past um, in terms of that specific industry experience. I think there's some things that are skill specific, um, but if you've done sales at a more traditional company um, and then you want to transition in tech sales, that job description is going to say, well, I want five years of SaaS experience. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of short-sighted because in the end you've got this, if you're good with people, if you're good at solution selling, questioning, hitting the ground, doing outbound, it shouldn't matter uh, whether you've got the industry experience. And so I think these upskilling pro- programs are like a really good answer to that gap because I think tech companies still, and I think all companies, I don't think it's a tech thing, struggle with kind of thinking outside the box and being able to say, um, and, and how to screen and apply certain criteria to picking people. So um, I'm not sure that'll completely change, but I hope people are going to be able to kind of repackage their skills in an interesting way to hopefully get tech there. Um, and I think that's a, a really interesting area. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I'd be totally open to too, is like, you can't teach the soft stuff. You can always teach the technical stuff. So, yeah. um, but a little bit of upskilling through something to learn a bit of the technical stuff might be the answer to just kind of closing that gap. Yeah. I, I actually talked to a founder about the exact same thing. He mentioned upskilling. He's like, although this individual might not have the certain skill sets or requirements, we can kind of create a program and their natural curiosity will lead them to be will lead them to have those skill sets. So I know there's a distinction maybe within hard sciences, like you're not going to hire someone who doesn't have data science experience for a like machine learning role or something yeah. like that. There are distinctions, but I feel like those roles that are open to interpretation around soft skills, I think, uh, you know, I think we in the tech community should be evaluating that a bit more uh, rather than saying, oh, you're from Goldman Sachs or whatever it is, yeah. uh, and you automatically get <laughs> an interview kind of thing. We, we know you're intelligent, but, you know, there, I, I feel like there is a kind of a, a disconnect there when we think of tech right now. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think, too, um, one of the things, just because we're deep in future of work, is that um, with contract roles, you can kind of test people out a little bit. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Like a full hire is pretty intimidating um, to bring somebody on, onboard them, um, invest all that money, and then potentially have to fire them if they don't work out. It's a huge investment. Um, With freelancers and contractors, you can kind of try someone out and say, all right, like here's the problem. Let's run at it for a month or two and see if it works. And then maybe that turns into something. And I think using more of that to kind of give people opportunities to show versus trying to make this really educated guess up front. It's almost like we treat our recruiting and hiring in tech as waterfall, even though we're so against it um, everywhere else. And so if we treated it a little bit less like that, I think there'd be some huge benefits. Alex, that kind of wraps up kind of the questions that we had around Control HQ and your background as well. Uh, one thing that we like to do to close off our podcast is to do a lightning round where we toss some quick questions at you and we want the first kind of answer that you have that comes up to mind. Cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, so first off, can you tell us maybe your favorite book or movie of all time? Mm-hmm. It's always hard to pick favorites. Um, I'm going to pick one that I'm reading right now that's helping me <laughs> through the startup journey. Um, so it's my favorite right now, favorite of the moment. Um, but Messy Middle by Scott Bergen is awesome. Um, it's just like little tiny articles and it tackles all the hard stuff um, that isn't just exiting or starting a company, but all the stuff in the middle. Cool. Well, I haven't heard that one. I'm going to have to check this one out. Uh, <laughs> next question here. Could you name one person uh, from any point in time that you would want to have dinner with? Yeah, I'm going to be super lame on this one um, and go my grandma. <laughs> nice. So lame. <laughs> No, we love the sentimental ones. 
Uh, can you give us maybe the best piece of advice for a founder or female founder of anything uh, that you would give based on your experience thus far? For sure. I think the big thing for me um, would probably be for founders on the fence. Um, <laughs> it's just a jump in. I hear a lot of friends are waiting for the perfect opportunity of the perfect point or the perfect thing or perfect idea. So um, my advice is just start and probably in two years, you'll be in a totally different spot than what you thought you were going to start or found. Um, so just jump into the deep end. Jump into the deep end. We love that. We love the, we love a good philosophical answer. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, we like to end with the controversial question here around food. Uh, Alex, do you like pineapples on your pizza? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I have to get separate pizzas when we order pizza. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Yeah, I'm totally anti fruit on pizza as well. So Alex is on my team on that one. (laughs) Alex, this has been great. Thank you so much. We think uh, you're uh, servicing a great niche. And obviously with the way we're going uh, with uh, freelance work and remote work, I think Control HQ is going to be positioned to have an explosion of uh, just helping these people in the space in the future, if not now. Um, Where can we find you? Where can people connect with you? Is there any last words that you would like to add in here? Yeah. Um, so for company, www.controlhq.com or find Control HQ on TikTok and Instagram and all the places. Um, and then personally, I used to say LinkedIn, but now it's just too noisy. So Alex at controlhq.com. 